1: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression. I'm Jerry Baker from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm really pleased you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, then please do sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, the 2024 Republican presidential primary field is suddenly abloom with hopefuls. On Monday, Senator Tim Scott launched his bid with a powerful telling of his extraordinary American story. And on Wednesday, we have the long-awaited and much-anticipated arrival into the race of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We are recording this Wednesday morning, a few hours ahead of DeSantis' campaign launch, which he's doing through the unusual medium of a Twitter appearance with Elon Musk. These latest arrivals into the field, of course, are challenges to the man the opinion polls and the betting markets currently make the prohibitive favorite, former President Donald Trump. These other candidates join Nikki Haley who's been in the race for a few months already, along with former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and political ingenue and tech entrepreneur turned scourge of wokeness Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, they are likely to be joined, further joined in coming weeks by, among others, perhaps former Vice President Mike Pence, maybe former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Now, as I said, the polling puts Trump way ahead of all the others. The latest Real Clear Politics average has him at 56%. That's 37 points ahead of DeSantis, with no one else in double digits. But do these national polls really matter at this stage? Or is the race over already before it starts? How can we expect it to unfold over the next few months before the first debate this summer and the first primaries early next year? Well, here this week to take the temperature of the GOP contest, I'm delighted to welcome Kristen Saltis-Anderson. Kristen's a leading Republican pollster, a founding partner of Echelon Insights, an opinion research and analytics firm. She's developed a particular focus on the opinions and views of millennials, She's the host of SiriusXM's The Trendline with Kristen Soltis-Anderson, and she appears, of course, regularly, as you'll be familiar, on TV, podcasts, and indeed what we used to call newspapers. She joins me now. Kristen, thanks very much for joining Free Expression.
2: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So it's a big week in the Republican primary field. The field is suddenly getting significantly larger. Obviously, earlier in the week, we had Tim Scott. I want to talk about him announcing his bid. But the big news today, and I should say we're recording this Wednesday around lunchtime. The big news, of course, is today's this evening's launch of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign. Intriguingly and interestingly, in a conversation, apparently, with Elon Musk on Twitter, and we can talk about some of the details of that. But let's start, Kristen, if we can, then, with this Ron DeSantis launch. What do you make of this decision to launch in this way? I mean, is this kind of DeSantis proving his fascinating, innovative, Style Is there some steep significance behind it? What do you make of it?
2: If I were Ron DeSantis, I would be skeptical of dealing with sort of mainstream or traditional media. Oftentimes, the things that he's been doing down in Florida, by the time they percolate up to national media, they are often described in a way that is not particularly just to him as governor. And so his team has pretty consistently been skeptical of traditional media. So this makes sense and is in keeping with that strategy. The question is whether that is sustainable. Um, There have been a lot of lessons learned by Republican politicians during the Donald Trump era about what is and isn't acceptable to voters, what you do and don't need to do in terms of engaging with the media that has left a lot of Republican politicians trying to do things like Donald Trump did, you know, speak directly to your voters, not have to go through mediators like the media. But the real question is, is that something that is replicable by people who are not Donald Trump and do not have his pre-existing awareness, his brand, his name ID, his place in our national cultural firmament. And so whether Ron DeSantis can sort of steal a page out of the Trump playbook and go direct to voters without that intermediary is still an open question. But also remember, Donald Trump does not actually avoid media altogether. He does love going directly to his voters, but he showed up on CNN for a town hall. He used to regularly call in to shows like Morning Joe. Uh, And so Donald Trump is somebody who may dislike the media, but also loves to engage with the media. And Governor DeSantis does not. It'll be fascinating to see if that stylistic difference yields any benefits or has any drawbacks for DeSantis
1: moving forward. And I don't know about you, but I do find this um, Republican love affair with Elon Musk maybe, well, it's sort of hard not to think that it may end in tears. I mean, Musk is obviously doing his own thing. He's earned a lot of credit with the right over what he's done with Twitter. But, you know, there's a man after all who seems to really like doing business in China. He's benefited from significant government subsidies to build his business. It doesn't seem like an absolutely natural fit. And I just slightly wonder that this love affair is going to come back to haunt them one day. What do you think?
2: Well, about 20, 30 years ago, Republicans could name a variety of major CEOs who were pretty much in their camp Were voting for the politicians that they liked, espousing the values that they said they supported. And there has now been this big divorce between the right and most of big business and frankly, most of wealthy Americans. You now have both right and left in this country that think the wealthy are largely on the other team. And so in the same way that for Republicans who don't have very many, say, cultural celebrities who uh, prominently identify with their worldview, when you find someone like Kid Rock, suddenly he's got to play every single Republican convention ever because hey, we got one, (laughs) and it feels a little bit like that kind of dynamic with Elon Musk. Like, hey, we found one, a tech billionaire who doesn't seem hostile to our interests. Let's adopt him and make him one of us. And there is, of course, a risk of kind of overreaction there or assuming that he's with you on all things all the time. I think he is an unconventional character who is hard to pigeonhole. So if I were the right, I would enjoy the fact that Twitter is now a place that seems less hostile to you, But at the same time, there may be other changes that he makes to Twitter down the road that they find less appealing or less positive, especially with Twitter being a company that is going to have to satisfy shareholders and do some level of positive growth, not just kind of being a place where Elon Musk can have it as his own fiefdom.
1: Well, it's a valuable marriage of convenience, as you say, at the moment. And we'll see like whether these like all marriages of convenience, we'll see whether it lasts. Let's talk about DeSantis again. I want to move on to the other candidates, too, and obviously the broader field. But let's talk about DeSantis. What's your take on him right now? I mean, this has been a kind of a roller coaster six months or so for him right after he won re-election, that huge majority in Florida uh, last November. He was riding high. Donald Trump at the same time was kind of making some missteps, we might call them. Then in the last few months, It seems to be DeSantis who's making the missteps. Trump, I think, perhaps partly propelled by these legal cases, particularly the Alvin Bragg district attorney in Manhattan prosecution. That seems to have really kind of cemented support behind him. So, you know, now everybody's down on DeSantis. Everybody thinks it's over before it started. What's your take? Is the current pessimism for DeSantis as, as misplaced as the kind of euphoria that some people had about him at the end of last year?
2: I think both of them are a bit of an overreaction. And it's important to remember that folks like you and I who are following this very closely, we are not the median Republican primary voter even. And bearing in mind that primary voters are people who are generally more tuned into politics, they are not necessarily watching the ups and downs as much. And so there very much is an introducing himself to America project that needs to take place here. Everybody in America knows who Donald Trump is and what he is about. But for Ron DeSantis, in part because he has not engaged with traditional media as much, a lot of what your media Republican primary voter is seeing is kind of filtered bit through the lens of conservative media, but also filtered through the lens of what is Donald Trump saying about him. And if Donald Trump is out there saying bad things about him while conservative media is perhaps being a little bit gentle and trying not to wade too much into this power struggle, then, of course, you're going to see some attrition. But once he announces his candidacy, he'll be able to put real money and his campaign has raised enormous amounts of money. His super PAC is going to be very well funded. He will be able to put some real effort and some real resources into defining himself to those folks who are reliable Republican primary voters, but maybe have just seen bits and pieces of things that he has done, say his fight with Disney or perhaps his the efforts he undertook in Florida to keep the state mostly open during COVID. He's going to have a lot more introduction to undertake with this
1: audience. He supported this Florida legislation for a six-week limit on abortion, having initially backed uh, a 15, 15-week limit. You know, Trump has kind of hinted a bit of criticism about that, saying that's maybe not where most of the country is. What's your sense about that? I mean, it presumably will play well with a lot of Republican primary voters, perhaps particularly in places like Iowa and elsewhere. What are the politics of that? Do you think it's a A smart move, or is it something either that won't get him very far in the primary and may hurt him in the general election? Should he get that far? What's your sense of the politics of it?
2: Well, there are two things going on in Trump's criticism of DeSantis around this issue. One is about policy itself, and one is about the conversation around electability. Well, let's take the electability piece first. You know, Ron DeSantis is making the case reportedly in conversations with donors, as well as sort of giving nods to it in his public remarks. I fully suspect he will lean into this during his announcement about I am the all the things you like about Donald Trump, but I am more electable. But of course, Republicans did not do very well, or at least not as well as they had hoped in the 2022 midterms. And while some Republican voters think that's because of Donald Trump, there are a lot of other Republican voters that think Trump wasn't the problem. Actually, the shifting politics post-Dobbs decision held Republicans back in being able to capitalize on, you know, the red wave that never came.
1: Was it Trump? Was it abortion? A mixture of the two? What's your sense?
2: I think it was a Mixture of the two. I don't think it was necessarily one or the other. I think in certain cases, it was perhaps a little bit of neither and more just candidates who they themselves were not good fits for the state or had struggles in some other way. So I issue a single unified theory of the midterms. But I do think that for Republicans who felt disappointed in the outcome and were casting about for what went wrong, for Donald Trump to say, hey, it wasn't me, it was the politics of this abortion issue. And if you think that it was bad then, gosh, a six-week abortion ban in Florida, this guy's leaning into it and is only gonna make it work. It's Trump's attempt to push back on Desantis's claim that he is more electable. But the other piece of this is just the shifting landscape of what issues really matter to Republican voters. The issue of abortion used to be the a number one issue when it came to, quote unquote, the social and cultural issues on the right. It was one of the main things that evangelical voters were very focused on, you know, walked away from the pro-life line kind of at your peril. And that has shifted a bit where now I see in my polling among social and cultural conservatives much more energy around things like pushing back against race and gender ideology. and Those sorts of issues have taken the place of abortion as the top most animating force. And so Trump is, I think, gambling that actually he can diverge from the strong pro-life line and actually not be penalized for it because he will still talk a lot about things like gender issues, race issues, et cetera, and be able to capture energy in that way.
1: That's also obviously very much DeSantis's pitch, right? I mean, he's made that one of the hallmarks of his uh, Florida governorship, taking on sort of woke corporations and woke educators and, you know, with some pretty pretty tough legislative action. That leads me to the question, what's DeSantis' strategy here? Is there a political lane that he's trying to get in, maybe to Trump's right on things like abortion and maybe some other issues too? Or is he going to take on Trump simply on the basis of Trump's supposed unelectability? Is he going to take on Trump directly over his character and things like that? I mean, what's your sense of what would make most sense for DeSantis in dealing with what is obviously his major competitor and the huge obstacle to him getting the nomination?
2: It seems to me that Governor DeSantis's team is probably looking at the same sorts of numbers that I am, which is that Republican voters have affection for Donald Trump. They really love his agenda. They wish that he was still president right now, but they worry about his mouth. They worry that he runs his mouth too much, that he picks fights that are unnecessary, that he picks fights within his own party that are unnecessary, and that there is a potential that that could jeopardize the ability of conservatives to really put points on the board. The question is, how do you deliver that message? Who is a credible messenger there? And if you come out of the gate as someone who who criticizes Donald Trump, do actually lose that credibility? Finding the right messenger for that message has been a huge challenge for Republicans who would like to see Donald Trump exit stage left. And Ron DeSantis trying to take on that mantle, it will be fascinating to see because of all of the very conservative things he's done in Florida, where he can say, I am not some never Trump moderate squish. I am thoroughly conservative, if not to the right of Donald Trump on some things. I just think he's not the guy for the moment. Or for the future. The risk, of course, is that Republicans in a focus group or in a sort of inside family environment, they think Donald Trump tweets too much or his mouth gets him in trouble. But as soon as somebody from the outside starts saying it, it's almost as though there's an antibody response that goes on. That suddenly they become very defensive of him. No, you don't attack my guy. And so the question for me is, is somebody like DeSantis have the credibility to level these attacks without triggering that antibody response in Republican voters who could be persuaded to walk away from Trump and choose someone new, but nevertheless feel almost an, an obligation to defend Donald Trump whenever he gets attacked by someone on the outside.
1: How much expect DeSantis to directly go after Trump? We have the model of Chris Christie, right, who did it last time and is sort of apparently suggesting he's going to do it again if he gets into the race, just directly saying this man is unfit to be president. His character, his record, the criminal charges against him, the whole sort of behavior over January the 6th, this man is just not fit to be president. I mean, that's obviously an enormously risky strategy. It's kind of almost like, you know, throwing yourself on a hand grenade. But I mean, how does DeSantis deal with that question? Does he continue to sort of use the euphemism, well, Trump's unelectable and, you know, also we couldn't shouldn't we should stop talking about 2020. We need to look forward. Or does he at some point, whether it's in a debate or in an ad or in a speech, just stand up there and say this man should not be president of the United States?
2: I am fascinated by this question because For Ron DeSantis right now, he's trying a strategy that is a little bit have your cake and eat it too, right? You like Donald Trump, but you want a slightly better version, pick me. The challenge he may find is if 40 percent of Republican voters do not want the new formula, they want the original formula, they want full calorie Coca-Cola, they don't want new Coke. If that's their approach, then he's going to have to hit a little bit harder to convince some of those Republican voters, no, actually, you don't want the original formula and you don't just want a slight tweak on it. You really need something totally different. If he finds that trying to pitch himself as Donald Trump, but slightly different and slightly better isn't actually peeling people away, that may be where you see him reaching for a more aggressive strategy to try to. A capture, you know, some of those other folks in the party, mind you, who don't love Donald Trump as much, are looking for an alternative, and frankly, maybe turned off if Ron DeSantis does not seem courageous enough to really take the fight to his opponent.
1: Conversely, how does Trump deal with DeSantis, do you think? I mean, we've seen, I think we've probably already answered that question, right? I mean, the usual combination of mocking, uh, and, you know, the usual nicknames, Ron DeSantis, the Sanctimonious, as we've talked a little bit about, attacking some of his political positions, maybe especially over abortion. He's been very critical of DeSantis' Fight with Disney, I mean, does Trump just do his characteristic entertaining put downs of you know, Meatball Ron or whatever, or does he need a more, if you like, sort of more cogent political strategy to um, to see off DeSantis?
2: Well, I, I certainly think that a nickname like Ron DeSantis does not seem like the former president's best work, but I do think that if he finds the things that voters do have questions about when it comes to Ron DeSantis, so for instance, Governor DeSantis has been criticized for maybe not being the warmest, friendliest, or most charismatic politician. Of course, Donald Trump, love him or hate him. He does have an odd kind of charisma in some way. And so he is captivating. Again, love him or hate him. So does the former president find, maybe it's not Meatball Ron, but, you know, is there some kind of a nickname that can stick that not because of the nickname, but because it evokes in you a reminder of something that makes you skeptical of Ron DeSantis or just not quite like him that much. That can really begin to eat away at you. The other message that you're seeing Donald Trump really run with is an attempt to tap into Republican voters' feelings about loyalty. Donald Trump has always been able to go after never-Trump Republicans or people who worked for him but then quit on, you know, principled grounds. I can't work for him anymore. Saying, hey, you should be loyal to me. And so you're seeing a lot of Trump's certain gets his team around him saying Ron DeSantis isn't loyal. I made Ron DeSantis and he turned me. And so to the extent that you start getting, you know, the name weasel Ron, Ron weasel, you know, something like that that tries to undercut the idea of Ron DeSantis as a man of character. You would think Donald Trump attacking someone else as a man of character, what this is a strange world we live in and yet you very well could see that throughout this campaign.
1: We'll take a break there, but when we come back I'll have more on the 2024 GOP presidential contest with Kristen Saltis Anderson
0: That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to Free
1: Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm discussing the race of the Republican presidential nomination with pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson. I want to talk about the polling, which is you're very much an expert in that and where it stands at the moment, and and then maybe talk about the early states too. But we must just have a quick word, obviously, about Tim Scott, the other candidate who got officially into the race this week with that very powerful, very energetic launch on Monday and that wonderful American story that he is able to tell about his own life, the extraordinary roots that he has and how he's managed to be a kind of model of the American dream. And of course, he has this particularly wonderful story, particularly for Republicans, that as an African-American, a conservative African-American, he can push back. Against a lot of the sort of the left's critique of the Republican Party for supposedly as a party of white supremacists, he's at one percent in the polls. Presumably, you get a little bit more attention and maybe a little bit more traction. Where do you see Tim Scott's campaign? How do you rate it? What's your sense from your polling, and from your general political knowledge of what his prospects are?
2: Well, Tim Scott is somebody who's really just an exceptional member of the U.S. Senate, and I am glad that he's taking this leap because I'm glad that more Americans are going to get to hear from him and hear his story. It strikes me that he is very unlikely to take any kind of direct hits at the former president. I don't think that he views that as his fight. I think in his case, he wants to be positive. He wants to be the cheerful warrior and is essentially kind of waiting to see, one, as more Americans get to see him for the first time, you know, in those first early debates, is he able to really have a moment, captivate people and therefore become the, better alternative to, you know, if you don't love Donald Trump, but you kind of think that the food fight that has emerged between him and Ron DeSantis is unappealing, somebody like Tim Scott, who I can see himself trying to keep himself out of that fray, can try to position himself as the unifier, as the peacemaker, as the one who, if you don't like the infighting and you want something that feels optimistic, you can turn to him. However, that assumes that you will have some kind of implosion of both of the current front runners, and isn't necessarily a strategy to go after them or draw a strong contrast. So I'll be interested to see how much his campaign is this uplifting, positive, I'm a great guy, my story is incredible and you should really like me and vote for me message, or does he begin to really throw some barbs at the other candidates in the race.
1: A lot of candidates like this who are kind of long shots but have a very interesting story and a particular appeal, maybe they're potential vice presidential material. Do you see maybe Tim Scott's career going in that direction?
2: It certainly seems as though the former president, if he is uh, reelected or becomes the Republican nominee again, is going to have to choose a running mate and doesn't seem likely that he's going to have Mike Pence back around for round three. So... In that case, you know, somebody like a Tim Scott, you could certainly do worse than Tim Scott being on the ticket with you.
1: And just quickly again, before we come to the sort of the national polling picture, other candidates, it does look like former Vice President Mike Pence. We might get, as I mentioned earlier, Chris Christie. We might get Chris Sanunu of New Hampshire. We've already got Asa Hutchison, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy. Of course, this uh, sort of kind of slightly interesting political ingenue. Any of those either current candidates or likely candidates, do you think, moving the needle? I'll be
2: fascinated to to see if Chris Christie has any credibility with kind of Trump world and if Trump voters and if he comes out aggressively, strongly against Donald Trump, does that move the needle at all? What I suspect for him is that you know, if you really like Donald Trump, you may view Chris Christie as a bit disloyal. And if you don't like Donald Trump, you may remember Chris Christie as having given Trump an awful lot of credibility in very early parts and critical parts of the primary process in 2016. So I do wonder who his audience really is. But there's a chance that their are in slice of the party that is going to look for somebody to take harder hits at Donald Trump than any of the other candidates in the field are willing to Is that a strategy to win? No, but is it a strategy to command potentially a slice of delegates in states that are not winner-take-all? That's not every state, mind you, but it's one way to sort of make your name heard and perhaps get yourself up to 10, maybe even 15 percent if you're lucky. That's more of what I'm looking at. What do they do to differentiate and how much that differentiation is saying, I'm the one that's actually go after Trump while everybody else here is a coward. Does that kind of quote unquote strength actually appeal to voters or does it make them seem, oh, you're disloyal and you're causing more of a food fight? No, thank you. That is the big question for these folks that are currently running around, you know, between 5 and 7%.
1: Let's look at the overall polling picture. Trump at the moment obviously has an absolutely prohibitive lead, 30, and looking at the real clear politics average, which gives him a 37-point lead at 56% against DeSantis at 19, with nobody else in double figures. Now, we are... Still eight months out from the first primary votes. And I think there's a large caveat that all pollsters like you always enter at this stage, which is to say, look, these national polls are very, very unreliable at this stage. But you can go back and look you know, at this stage, probably in 2016. I think maybe still Jeb Bush was still out in front in, you know, 2007 in the Democratic primary. Hillary Clinton was a mile in front. You know, these things are not necessarily reliable. What's your view as it stands of the current polling picture? Is it giving us a strong indication of where this is going to go or should we just set it aside right now
2: When I look at these national polls I am looking for 3 things I'm looking for what is Donald Trump's share I'm looking for what is Ron DeSantis's share And then I'm looking for how much of this is assigned to the rest of the field. I'm less interested in, gosh, is Nikki Haley at 7% this month and last month she was at 5%. Those little things don't necessarily catch my attention at the moment. But what is the distribution of Republican voters across I'm in for Trump, I'm in for the main big Trump alternative, or... I don't really want either of those. I want to explore something totally different. Those are the ways that I am am evaluating this field. Remember, there is no such thing as a national primary. This will be decided in state after state after state. And so somebody, for instance, like a New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu, He's going to register as almost nothing in a national poll, but he's going to be very formidable in a New Hampshire poll. So don't just follow the national polls. Keep an eye on some of those early state polls as well. But bear in mind, too, that this in many places is a winner take all contest. And so even if Donald Trump is not getting to, say, 50 percent, as long as he's still the number one candidate, as long as you wind up with him in poll position, that could be enough for him to amass the delegates he needs to lock this up pretty early.
1: So, yeah, don't look at those national polls. Everybody always says that, except for certainly in terms of a horse race. And the focus really is obviously on those early states. Are you seeing anything at all from the polling in the early states yet, which again, I know is we're at a very primitive stage here, but Iowa New Hampshire, obviously the traditional early states. You know, you do hear things, people are talking about it among political consultants, pollsters, that maybe actually whatever Trump's overwhelming national lead, that he might be struggling rather more. Of course, he didn't win Iowa in 2016, as we know. He did go on to win New Hampshire. But are you seeing anything at all in the early states that maybe... Gives a slightly different picture from the national story.
2: Well, if you look at a state like a New Hampshire, the presence of someone like Governor Chris Sununu, who has been open in his criticism of Donald Trump in the past, and yet he still is viewed very favorably there. That suggests that Donald Trump could run into some trouble in a state like New Hampshire. You've also got in that state the ability for independent voters to cross over and participate it won't necessarily be a huge portion of the electorate, but just something to keep in mind. But remember, early states like Iowa, as you mentioned, not necessarily the best state for Donald Trump. A state like South Carolina, you're going to have both Nikki Haley and Tim Scott running there as hometown candidates. Only one of them will be able to win. And even if if neither of them can win, then that's kind of a big problem for both of their candidacies. So there's a lot going on in these early states where each of them is quite different. But also in these early states, that's where the primary voters are going to be tuned in the most. If you live in Iowa, Ron DeSantis is already showing up in your communities. If you live in New Hampshire, Donald Trump and some of these other folks may be making their way there to come and visit. And so the primary is a little more present to you if you are in one of these early states that is just going to get bombarded over the coming months with candidates coming through.
1: And finally, Kristen, as you look at the race right now, what are the things that most interest you? What are the characteristics of this race, perhaps that distinguish it from previous races? I mean, this is the third time around that Donald Trump is running. I'm wondering about issues like the fact that Donald Trump is going to be term limited for a start, right? Is, is there a kind of a X factor out there that people will say, well, actually, I, you know, I don't want to just elect a president who can only serve one term. Are there going to be any other candidates? What are the kind of wild cards here that we should maybe on the lookout for?
2: I would keep a look at what's going on with the president's legal situation. And that's not necessarily because Republican voters think that the investigations into him are legitimate or that the accusations made to him are justified, but rather to what extent do his legal problems continue to mount in such a way that makes Republicans voters go, gosh, this is just too risky for me. You've already seen it now play out with the former president's comments about E. Jean Carroll in the CNN town hall now putting him into further legal jeopardy. A jury is requiring him to pay a large sum of money to her for things like defamation. And then he immediately goes on television and says the exact things, again, that he had just been held accountable by a jury for having said. And so does the weight of all of this begin to accumulate such that Republican voters go, I think this is all unfair and I think the world is against him, but I don't know that I wanna put all of my tips on him. Alternatively, as these investigations play out, does it create some of that antibody effect I was talking about before, where suddenly Donald Trump being under siege rallies the party around him in a defensive capacity. And that makes it harder for other candidates to uh, gain steam. I think the president's legal challenges are going to play a big role in the coming months. But what I don't know is whether they will hurt him or help him.
1: Kristen Soltis Anderson, that's a very good note on which to end. Thanks very much for joining Free Expression.
2: Of course, thank you for having me.
1: Well, that's it for this week. Please join us again next week when I have another examination of a big issue that's shaping our world. Until then, thanks very much and goodbye.